thank you for joining us today. Can you quickly introduce yourself for our listeners? Sure. My name is Everett Harper. I'm a care board member and the CEO of a company called Trust, which is a software infrastructure consulting company working with large government agencies and with startups to modernize their technology. How long have you been on the care board? Since 2017. Why should we talk about failure? There's a couple of reasons. You can't talk about resilience if you can't talk about failure. In my experience, resilience is an incredibly important component if you're doing work that involves changing systems or changing people's lives, because you will always come across places where you have a difficulty. If you're taking that risk, if you're trying to make change, you better learn how to be resilient and you can't talk about it without failure. Second, I think we learn probably more from our mistakes than, than our successes. It's very easy to assume certain components to your success, but it can be starkly clear what you should learn when you have a mistake. And for me, the question is, how do you make mistakes well, or how do you have failures that are useful? I think it's also important to talk about that the goal is not to fail. <laughs> the goal is to learn. The goal is to get better. The goal is to improve. And so I'm actually not a big fan of the sort of fail fast, fail often mantra, because I think it lacks a little depth. If you fail to learn, and to grow and to diagnose. The goal isn't to fail. And then I think the last is this is a practice and one can actually make learning from failures methodical. And there's practices that I use or that we use as a company to help do that. Everything from screw up of the week for our weekly meetings where the lead, for our leaders talk about a screw up that happened that week. And then what we did to solve it and how to mitigate it all the way to really large scale retrospectives where we look at a really impactful failure and figure out how to learn from it. Those are really useful tools and I can already think about applying a few of them in my own work and nudging a couple of other people I work with to use some of those. You were going to talk about a specific case study for us today. So can you talk a little bit about the case and the context it comes from? The last time I had a job that was defined before I got it was 1989. So I've been involved with trying to do new things. And the failure I'll talk about is making a smart calendar app back in 2011-12. What we were trying to do was design an app to make your calendar notify you when you needed to leave for your next meeting. So rather than, oh, I have a meeting now, but you're in a car, you want the notification to know when I should leave for the airport with the context of traffic and other facts. We went to, to, went to work, did a lot of really good work on the coding of the app itself for the mechanics. Now, this was a time, it was relatively early in the App Store, and one of the things that I thought was necessary was to have a distinctive design, that the design, the visual design itself had to be catchy and had to be clever so that people would kind of be addicted to it or interested. So I searched for a visual designer. The person did a really interesting design. And we paid about $5,000 for it. This is not a venture-funded company. This was coming out of our pockets. So everything that we were spending, we were tracking really closely. We launched it to the App Store. We got a bunch of early adopters, which is very exciting. And then there was a change in the app format. And also we noticed there were some things that weren't working as expected. That's not a big deal. But in order to change that for the next version, we realized that we couldn't change the visual design. So we had to essentially take apart the design we paid a lot of money for 
and rebuild it with standard components and standard fonts and so forth. And that took more time and effectively cost more money as well. So how did you move past that failure? What were some actions you took to correct it? So what did we learn from it? What we had to do is figure out, well, what went wrong? We employed a visual designer who hadn't really worked a lot with engineers. And importantly, we made an assumption. The assumption was this app needs to be distinctive. We didn't test that assumption. And that cost us a lot of money. <laughs> what was the assumption? That it matters to people that it's distinctive. We could have actually quickly used standard components and got it into the market and got customers using it and notice whether anybody says, I love the design, or I wish there was more design, or I wish there was better colors. Notably, when we stripped the design out and simplified it, everybody really loved the way it worked. They didn't notice that the design was less cool. So what we should have done, and the mistake we made, is do a small experiment. So rather than taking the big risk and spending a lot of money, we could have done standard thing, put it out to 20 people, to see what people's response is, and learn from that. Maybe what they cared most about was that the buttons were bigger, or that the font is huge, or they don't even care about font, they just want something that buzzes in their pocket at the right time. They don't care what it looks like because they're not gonna look at their phone, they just want the notification. How we moved past it was, as we said, to strip it down. But more importantly, and this is the same company that I'm CEO of now, it became lore in our company about how about screw-ups. And in particular, about always checking with the end user, finding a way to get something into someone's hand and watching them use it, rather than assuming someone's going to like something, or rather than surveying people, because what people say and what they do are very different. And third, to actually watch people interact with things. You learn so, we learn, or I've learned so much from that interaction. So I think the message, uh, the underlying message is check your assumptions. The best people to check it with are the end users and the customers of your, of your product or service. And then make small experiments and small improvements rather than big, huge initiatives because that takes time and takes money. And frankly, if you're wrong, it's really risky. So that's a great example of thinking through what is the end user and how are they going to interact. Something we run into all the time at CARE is this gap between what people say on a survey and what they're actually going to do. One thing I think that's distinct at CARE is the people we serve, our end users, by definition almost, tend to be yep. very far away and very hard to reach. So how would you think about translating that into a much more analog environment where doing those kinds of very small experiments with 20 people can be very challenging? I think this is a place for real initiative and creativity. And it's hard to be blanket uh, about that because some things are, as you said, analog. Some things are digital, but the end user is really far away. I was part of an incubator. The team, my team, wanted to do a travel app. Coordinating people, traveling, it's cat herding and all this kind of stuff is really hard. We were thinking about this stuff. We designed a bunch of pages. Did it, we did it on paper. So, you know, kind of doing it in a lo-fi version was our first step. And one person asked, he said, you know, how are you gonna get to me as a traveler when I'm making the decision to travel? Because if I've already decided your app is no good to me and I may go on one coordinated trip a year, so it's really important for you as a business to get to me at the right time. This is an assumption I'm making, how do I test that? So I said, where do people go when they're planning trips? They go to the bookstore, and this when there was more bookstores, but they go to a travel bookstore, right? So what I did was I would I took a piece of paper, with, I drew out the app, 
as, as high fidelity as I could in terms of the pages that they'd go through to make choices about their travel. And I went to the bookstore. I sat in the travel section and I got kicked out of one. <laughs> I got kicked out of one borders, but I got to a second one. And what I was doing was asking people as they were coming up to the travel section, hey, I'm, I'm doing a, a survey. I'm trying to test out an app that might help you travel. Would you be willing to look at these pages really, really quickly to give me feedback? About half of them said, no, no, thanks. The other half looked, yeah, sure, that's interesting. I might use it. So what conclusion did I draw from that? The conclusion I drew from that, if I can't convince them in person that what I'm giving them is useful, there is no way that I'm going to be able to convince them in a non-personal digital way. So we went and redid our entire app, which turned into something for EAs instead, by the way, who do care very much about travel and have to do it frequently. What does this have to do with care? You can test situations with much less finesse than you might think in order to understand how people respond. If you're trying to do an improvement to the way that um, somebody delivers healthcare or that somebody buys food or um, that someone has an interaction VSLA, I wanna make a slight improvement, you can go to that group and write it on paper, or you can model it, or you can role play it, or there's so many ways that you can do it. Where what you're trying to do is not fix the problem, what you're trying to do is learn as fast as possible, as quickly as possible, did you actually overcome the problem? And if you hadn't, that's great. They will tell you really quickly, nope, that's gotta be this way, not that way. Or I would never use that because I don't have a mobile phone. Oh, right, we forgot about that assumption. You can figure that out in much less time than you might think. There's a ton of work done on this under what they call customer development in the sort of lean startup uh, world, but customer development is the practice. And there's so many tricks and so many techniques to getting feedback quickly before you do the expensive thing like ask for a grant, design a service, send people abroad. So knowing what you know about CARE's operating environment, what are a couple of tools that you'd recommend from that toolbox you just referenced? This is, this is I think, a big challenge that I've talked to a couple of people that CARE about because projects have like three-year valuation cycles. And I was thinking, three years? Yeah, what an enormous amount of time. Like, I'd want to get feedback within three months, not three, three years. It's so much time to go really far in a different direction. And I think this is in development in general, not just care. So I'll be really clear about that. I think shrinking the time that you start something and get feedback from customers is the most critical thing. And so the tools for that, if the grant cycle doesn't necessarily facilitate that, you have to think about dividing it up yourself. It's a very similar pattern in government projects, which we've very much encountered. And one of the things that we've done is said, okay, we're setting up a team to build a project. We're building a project in an iterative fashion. We do two things at the beginning of the project. We are really clear about scoping the project incredibly well. What are the milestones that we need to hit and working backwards from the end and taking into account, are we resourced well? What are the things that can go wrong? I usually put about a 30% mess up factor in there because you just can't account for everything. We do pre-mortems. Pre-mortems are, you know, as, as it suggests post-mortems, but it, it asks the following question. If you were to go to the end of this project in three years and you look back and the project was a failure, what things contributed to that failure? So you're asking people to go 
go into the future and look back and say, here's all the ways that we that we failed. And what it does highlights things that people didn't think about when you're planning going forward, because our natural tendency to, is to assume that everything is going to go smoothly. But if you actually think about what, what went wrong, all of a sudden, then you have a list of the risk factors. And then you can, at the beginning of the project, address the risks. You then have a way to, okay, how are we doing on our risk factors? For example, as the CEO, one of the risk factors is Everett's not going to have enough time and attention and he's going to be a bottleneck for decision making. Really common problem. So if that's going to be one of the risk factors, we have monthly, is Everett keeping up with the decisions or better yet, is Everett on any kind of bottleneck path? And I will do, I will remove myself from different processes to make sure that the team can act quickly and decisively without me holding them up. The third thing I'd say is working iteratively and working in one to two week cycles. You can implement iterative processes in development projects as well. The key piece of this is that at every two week period, you produce some sort of work product. And that work product has to be visible to everybody on the team. And it's not a paper. It's an actual thing. If you're building, if like you're building software, it's, it's a piece of code. If it's a design, it's a drawing. That has to be public and it has to be produced and done. Even if it's a small, tiny thing produced for a customer, the product owner, if you will, so that they can see it. Here's the reason why. You test your production with the person that you're, the group that you're working with or on beneficiaries. What it does is make sure that in very short segments, if you're starting to go wrong, it's quickly correctable. Even better, you can keep a person who's working with you up to date on the progress of the project without necessarily calling a big meeting. It's, you know, these meetings can take as little as 10 minutes. So for that investment of time, you can keep everybody on track Make sure that it's being tested with customers on a regular basis and keep the project owners involved and engaged. Are there any other thoughts that you would offer for people at CARE about how to talk about failure, how to learn from it more effectively? This is a big topic these days in a commercial space, in commercial companies. And it's the notion of psychological safety. What, that's, what that means is that people feel safe enough to bring up bad news, to identify when things are going wrong, and at every part of the organization, often the failures come right at the boundary where the project meets the customer. That's why like customer service reps, if you want to know what's really going on, talk to the customer service reps. Probably some version of, of people in the field, you want to really know what's going on, talk to them. But you have to create psychological safety so that they will tell you, yeah, here's what's going wrong. Frankly, also the customers will tell you if you create a place where they can be safe enough because everybody wants to please. Leaders have, I think, the biggest responsibility here, both in terms of modeling that it's psychologically safe. So when someone contradicts them, do they react or do they get curious? I would say the right answer is getting curious without kind of being personal about it, because then it's starting to model that, oh, the person can bring up something tough to say, and we can be curious enough to understand where they're coming from. The second place they could, so that's modeling and, and um, taking the tough questions, talking about mistakes that they made and doing that regularly. I think I said at the beginning, um, the founders of our company, me and the other two founders, every week we say, here's the screw up of the week. We did X, you know, and that really shows everybody's like, oh crap, that's hard. That feels like crap. I would feel bad if I was them. Maybe I'm not the only one experiencing this. 
structural tactic that actually can be implemented across teams is what they call the retrospective. And retrospectives are a regular way to talk about projects, not just at the conclusion. We do a, a retrospective every six weeks for our entire company, but also at regular checkpoints within different projects. Long story short, what it's trying to do is create a blameless environment to understand where the successes and the failures are, and then take action to mitigate them or learn from them in the future. So the, the basic structure is you take 10 minutes and everybody has sticky notes. So it's, it's an independent thing, which means you can do this worldwide. You don't have to have everybody in the same place. 10 minutes, write down what went well in the project. What you love about the project could be somebody, could be a thing, anything you want. You read them out, you vote on which ones are interesting, and then you talk about, let's say, the top four. 10 minutes to write, 10 minutes to, to talk. Then you take... 15 minutes to write down all the things that could be better, things that went wrong are going wrong and need to be better. Same thing, you vote on the ones that are most important and then 15 minutes to talk about it. Here's what happens. Particularly as a leader, you find out information that you had no idea about. If you created an environment for people to talk openly, people cluster around certain issues. If you have a cluster about one big issue, whoa, as a leader, you are getting amazing information. And now you have the group understanding from different perspectives about the same problem. This is a process that you can use regularly at any size group, and it gives you unbelievable information. But importantly, it starts to systematically build psychological safety because the point is not to blame anyone. Anybody. The point is to learn and to understand and then to mitigate risks in the future. One thing I've seen us do sometimes at CARE is that they do this thing about elephants in the room and we put up a flip chart with a picture of an elephant and you write down things that could be going better or things that it's awkward to talk about. Very often what I see is we write all the elephants in the room and then we go about the rest of our business with the elephant right there up on the wall. And we may or may not ever address that elephant. Yes, I'm so glad I left out an important piece. Uh, my mistake. At the end of the process, while we're talking about things, peeps, the facilitators noting action items. Hey, we should think about this or maybe we can do this or maybe we can do that. You don't talk about them then. You basically pull them over into an action item list. At the end of the meeting, the last 10 minutes, you go through the action item. They could be big things or they could be small things. And you go through each one and it's either we're not going to do it, we are going to do it, or we're going to defer it. Each one gets an assignment and it has a person's name. The next retro, you go through the list of action items from the last retro and you find out whether the person did it or not. So that key piece of accountability avoids the situation that you were just talking about. Thank you so much for your time today. That was Everett Harper on Sailing Forward. Thanks so much for listening and stay tuned for our next episode where we're going to talk about learning agendas and how we can do them better.